You're listening to Novel Bound, a podcast dedicated to making you laugh and keeping you company. Each week, we're sharing all of our favorite books and the embarrassing side of life. Welcome back to Novel Bound. I'm Anna. And I'm Celine. And today we're so excited. We have guest Adeline Grace on to interview her about her books and the writing process. You want to say hi? Hi. (laughs) We're so excited. Um, She recently, she has a finished series out, All the Stars and Teeth. It's amazing. We're mainly going to be talking about that. And then at the end, like we can do a little promo for you for Belladonna. Cool. Excited to talk about it. Coming out. Yes. If you don't don't pre-order it or just right now, get off. Get off. If you don't pre-order her book, get it. Get in your heads. It's great. Okay, please. Sorry, now that I've threatened all of our listeners, let's get started. Let's talk let's about started. who Adeline Grace is. Yes. Her. Yes. We grabbed this from the website. So Adeline Grace is a New York Times bestselling author of All the Stars and Teeth, which was named 2020's biggest YA fantasy by Entertainment Weekly. Wow. That's amazing. First of all, prior to becoming an author, Adeline spent four years working in live theater, acted as the managing editor of a nonprofit newspaper, and studied storytelling as an intern on Nickelodeon Animation's popular series, The Legend of Korra. I'm obsessed. Local to San Diego, Adeline spends her non-writing days by watching too much anime and by playing video games with her two dorky dogs. I feel like we are the same person. Are we? <laughs> yes, I like. Oh, like we're the same. We're the same. We're the we're same, the same. same. <laughs> I'm like, what games do you play? What console do you have? Uh, I've been playing a lot of, honestly, like a lot of Overwatch these days. Mm. But I also play, you know, Rune Factory. I'm really excited for the new Pokemon game that's coming out. Oh I'm gosh. actually gonna get it tonight. Yeah, uh, <laughs> you're the same person. Oh my gosh. <laughs> Harvest Moon, uh, Breath of the Wild, Kingdom Hearts was a big favorite. Final Fantasy. I are we the same. Yeah, we are the same. I okay, like good. obsessed all these games. <laughs> I literally Anna, I told you. Yeah. What was the thing I said in our DMs when I messaged you? I said, "Hi, would you allow us to hit on you the entire time?" <laughs> you were warned completely. Okay, you were. Yeah, you were. <laughs> proceed. <laughs> Wait, what about anime? Do you watch anime? I am like a closeted anime watcher. I really okay. just watch like romance anime because I mean, you have to love it. And then I've obviously You're watched right. like all the like um one punch man naruto like all just like the super popular ones okay have you seen you just have only watched like 12 anime what <laughs> what did you say have you seen full metal alchemist brotherhood yes okay, yes good. Good, good, i good, love good, that good. show i'm upset i like watched both the two versions of it right yeah yeah the best way to watch it is if you watch the the first one like the first half of it up into the hughes arc you know all of you mm. listening this is actually the most critical advice i'm going to give this entire <laughs> podcast oh, write this uh, down you, you watch it up to the Hughes arc. You'll know what I'm talking about once you've watched it. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then you switch over to Brotherhood and watch the whole thing. You're welcome. That's so smart. I didn't do that. I like, I didn't do that. And I should have, I should rewatch it and watch it like that. I mean, I didn't, I didn't do it initially either. I came up with this plan after I've watched both of them <laughs> because Brotherhood in the beginning, like they just kind of gloss over so much of the early stuff they because do. so many people have already seen it. So they're just like, mm-hmm. here it is. That's so smart. So yeah, you're welcome, everybody. I might have to do a rewatch. I might. I think, yeah, yeah, do it. That's an order. <laughs> okay. Love that. Now that, Love yeah. Now, now that I've introduced to you, I'm obsessed. <laughs> We're creeping. We're creeping. But okay, so for, if you have read 
um, I was going to say all the tides of faith, but if you've read all the skin, all the stars and teeth, holy crap. All the skin you and got teeth. The, that you would got be there quite in the novel. end. <laughs> oh my gosh. That okay. is a body horror novel. That's I'm going to edit this. No one's going to know. No one's going to know that I said that. Everyone's going to be like, wow, Selena's perfectly pronounced every single book title in the world, especially in front of the person that wrote the book. Cool. Cool. Kill me now. Okay. Here, I'll, we, I'll it up for you. If you, thanks, Hannah. if you read all the stars and teeth, um, we are going to be bringing stuff. I think we're going to keep it to the first books, um, mm -hmm. in terms of spoilers, because we want to make sure that everybody has it. And we'll even be very careful with spoilers for this, all the stars and teeth so that if you haven't read it, you'll still be able to really follow along. Mm -hmm. And, you know, we can obviously give background and stuff too. Um, but Adeline's one of the things that we just really admire about her work is, there's like three things that I think are just really, really strong in, in this book. And one is the fantastical writing. Um, she has a way of being able to really create these fantastical worlds and cultures, individual cultures on different islands with different languages and, and customs and like basically currencies and everything like that. She's also really good at being able to create um, like an unexpected like heroine like story, a redeeming mm -hmm a redeeming heroine story, which I think is really cool, where if you stick around and you watch that heroine grow from, you know, where she was to where she is, you're rooting for her so much in the end. And then the third thing is she's super hot. So we just had to get her on. We only have the prettiest people on, but those are like our main, those are our main focuses. So basically there you go. We're super excited. All right, Celine, do you want to start with the first question? Yes. Okay. So <laughs> we heard, why are you laughing? Alan, why are you laughing? I have myself muted because I'm over here just like cracking up, you guys. You're a queen. You are uncomfortable. Are we? Are we? Okay. So, um, do you want to give? We can give a quick summary, or if you want to, I feel like you've had to summarize this for the last like several years. Um, a quick summary of Amora and who she is and stuff like that. We want to talk about mm -hmm. the beauty of an unlikable character. For us, it was so incredibly satisfying when we had these character developments. For example, like when she apologized to Finnick and our big question about this was, was it really hard to write an unlikable main character? Did you feel vulnerable during it? We just would love to dive into the character creation because both of us have like, mm -hmm. it's really hard for us, to, for me to give my characters flaws and I get really scared. I'm like, they're not gonna wanna stick around, you know, so. Yeah, so All the Stars and Teeth, you're right, I have pitched this many, many times. Um, <laughs> it is a young adult fantasy about a morally gray princess who is forced to team up with a pirate to save her kingdom from a dangerous magical new threat. There are seven different forms of magic, there's sword fights and adventure and a mermaid who may or may not like to eat people. Mm -hmm. uh, regarding Amora, the main character, like I said, she is morally gray. She has been raised her entire life to believe that this magic she has, that only her family has, is this really important, really amazing thing. It's also this really gruesome thing. Um, and she, you know, she has a kind of complicated relationship with her magic. She loves it because she has been led to believe that this is how she will save and protect everybody, that it is her responsibility to use this magic for the benefit of her people. Um, which, you know, there's some stuff there that she kind of has to unpack throughout the series and things that she learns. But yeah, it's a very kind of gruesome magic. It relies on body parts mm -hmm. and blood um, and teeth, which, you know, all the stars and teeth, um, kind of how it got its title or yeah. part of it, at least, because she utilizes people's teeth to get some of their blood. 
And eventually if she has their blood, she can kill them. She can control their souls. Um, so yeah, that's kind of the magic just, or at least her magic just yeah. laid out. It's this very dark kind of gruesome thing that I tried not to shy away from. It's funny. Cause it used to be even darker and every really? single draft I sent to my editor was like, Hey, can we scale this back a little bit? So she doesn't <laughs> seem like a super bloodthirsty serial killer. Yeah. And I was like, Oh yeah, I guess I can work on that. Oh my gosh. That's crazy. I even like, I was seriously amazed like how well she was written because it's like especially the moment it clicked for me was when she was doing the like ceremony and she's like this like I'm doing this for my people and she has all this love in her heart and she's like they should be so impressed by me like and then she looks and realizes that like she sees disgust on her face and it like totally crumbles her and like breaks her almost and that's why she fails and yeah and then yeah, having to like she, come back from that I that was, was re-listening to this like in preparation for this interview my husband walks in and I'm like doing our laundry and have the audiobook on. And it's like right at the part when she's like massively brutally murdering um, the like minions. And like, it's like, there's like some, there's like the boy crying over his like that girl or whatever. My husband walks in and he was like, what are you listening to? And I was like, it's art, Tanner. I'm listening to art. Okay. There's a purpose. There's a reason. That's so funny. Yeah. I mean, I, I always wanted a Morley Gray character and honestly the entire story was kind of inspired by Amora I just had this vision in my head for this girl on a ship with her dad behind her um it ended up becoming you know the first chapter I didn't know where they were going I didn't know why they were on a ship obviously if they're on a Mm -hmm. ship there's an ocean yeah I knew that much I knew (laughs) they were going somewhere um but I wanted to create a character who was you know she likes fighting she likes adventure as much as she likes dresses and dating and a lot of it was inspired by my time watching game of thrones um and Sansa and Arya Stark how they were Mm. constantly pitted against each other and it was like I love Arya because she has swords Sansa sucks because she likes boys (laughs) yeah and it's like why you know Sansa has a very different sort of intelligence Mm -hmm. than Arya they're very different people but they're both like amazing and very good at like what they do Sansa yeah it was very immature in the beginning but she completely grows throughout the series just yeah. like Arya um so I kind of wanted to create a character who embodied both of them so that was the initial inspiration for mm-hmm. her and then she just very much grew into her own character from there and it was a lot of fun to write her I know you asked about you know were there any like insecurities I had in writing her and I think that when you're writing a morally gray female identifying character uh yeah there always is um mm-hmm. because you know that no matter what you do she is going to be met with intense ridicule and scrutiny that male characters do not get um yeah. you know you can go to any like Goodreads, Amazon, Barnes and Noble, any of my comment pages. And I'm sure that you will find reviews that specify how much people want to slap Amora or punch Amora, or, you know, she was so stupid. I just wanted to slap some sentence into her. And it's like, you don't talk that way about Kaz Brecker. You don't talk that way about the male characters. Like if they're making decisions you don't like, they have so much more wiggle room there where characters who identify as female do not. And, you know, I think the important thing about Morley Gray characters is you need to understand what they want 
And Amora's wants are very much rooted in other people. You know, she wants to protect other people and take care of other people. They're not selfish wants. You know, she's been raised her entire life to believe something and it's going to take a while to process that and change her own beliefs. But all she wants to do is protect her kingdom and be a good princess. She wants to be a good ruler. Um, So yeah, I have a lot of thoughts (laughs) about (laughs) the treatment of morally gray characters or uh, specifically when they are female identifying and sort of the treatment there. But I think that it's only going to get better the more we have and in creating Amora, I definitely knew this was coming. I expected it and I wrote her intentionally for that reason, knowing that we would get those reactions anyway. Mm-hmm. Yeah. She's very headstrong. She like that. I specifically remember like when Finnick ends up going on this journey with them and she's like, well, just don't you forget that I have rank. I am the boss here and you will be listening to me. And he's like, okay, okay. But then it was also so satisfying for her to come to that realization and say sorry to him and be like, you know, like you are a valuable person to this team, to me. And I, I do appreciate you. So thank you. I mean, she's very, very, she's very spoiled, um, especially in the <laughs> beginning, but throughout too, you know, she has her kind of bougie tastes and her beliefs and she's very headstrong, but mm-hmm. I think especially with Farrick, like she grows a lot with him. Like he right. is very much what a, is <laughs> oh my gosh. Oh, you're totally fine. Casually. We're just, I mispronounced the, the book title. I promise you, we, we it even says Farrick later on. I don't even know why that said Finnick. When I was, when we saw you talk, when we saw you talk in Yellfest, we legitimately were like, oh my gosh, like hearing you talk about this unlikable heroine, we were just both just like, we need to get her on the podcast and just like, let her talk about this. Because like, I just think this is such an amazing way that you did it. And it was like, I like clicked on your thing and it says that you followed us. And I was like, wait, wait, she okay, then we can, we can DM her right now. Like I was so excited to like, because honestly, like you are someone that there aren't as many unlikable heroines out there. There's not as many like morally gray, um, you know, girls out there. And it's almost Mm -hmm. like, it's like a villain redemption story in like the best way, but she's not even a villain because she honestly was raised to believe a certain way. She was raised to hold herself a certain way. There's so much at stake And for her, she is just doing what she's always been taught. And the second that she was given an ability to like learn that things weren't what she had, she was immediately trying to change herself. And I think that's like really, really cool. Like when she heard that, like um, when she interrupts like the father's council right before the ceremony or whatever, the minute that she heard something, she was like, what? Like, let's fix this, you know? And I think she might not have like, and I, even with the like unlikable character like even there like there's tiny little moments um the second that she gets an ability to to show like concern for people she does and like you know when she's helping everybody out and oh my gosh what's your amazing island with the time magic what is it called mm, no crossed no oh my gosh it's been so long i'm so it's sorry it's like no that's that, that is i was right harris you're right yeah Cross, but that she has I the map right we here. both have like our books out right here <laughs> these are the books you know, we got like, uh with your signature on them the second that do we have do i have mice do i have a signature <gasps> i don't you loser <laughs> i am a loser whatever okay anyways i just thought it was really cool like the second that she was given an opportunity to have concern for others she went straight for it and she fought really hard for it and i think that's super cool but when you were plotting out her character how did that kind of plot out work? So like you have the girl on the boat, 
you know, you started doing those things. Where were you kind of getting those? Like, I want her to have this, or this is how she was raised. Did you go through, we have the, uh, the emotional wound thesaurus, you know what I'm talking about? How did you start like building out her character like that and allowing her to like have those things and stuff like that or plotting out like when her character arc would change? Yeah, it's interesting. Amora always came very sort of naturally to me. And I think that part of it is (laughs) because I'm also a little bit aggressive like she is. Um, I think that, you know, it was really important for me to show her softness as well, but I wanted to show she has a very rigid moral structure and very set beliefs, but you're right. When she learns something, she definitely critiques herself and her own Mm -hmm. beliefs. And like, should I adjust these? And writing all the stars and teeth was an interesting process. I haven't done any book like it since, but I started just by pantsing it probably for the first like three chapters. And then I was like, okay, well, clearly I need to figure out what the heck I'm doing because I just made seven different magics and (laughs) what? Um, So I needed to figure that out. So I plotted three chapters ahead at any given time. Mm -hmm. Um, And then when I would like get two of those chapters in, I would stop and then I would plot out the next three. And a lot of her, her, a lot of her character development came from that, but also honestly edits. Like I got the story down and I was like, okay, she does seem a little bit like a serial killer here. Let's give her some more motive. Uh, let's get, let's make sure that people understand why she's doing what she's doing, which I think is very, very important when you have those darker characters and mm-hmm. um, giving readers something to grab onto and like, okay, this is why they're doing that. This is why or this is why I should root for her still. Even if I don't agree with what she's doing, I can mm-hmm. understand why she's doing it and why she's taking this way to get there. Um, so a, a lot of edits, a lot, a lot, a lot of edits um, for her character and making sure that everything was very clear. And even then, you know, if you're going to write a morally gray character, there's going to be a lot of people who disagree with it. Like you can do everything in your power And I think that Amora feels like a very real character to me. I feel like I did her justice, but you have to remember too, that you're not going to please everybody. Yeah. I think that's an important thing to consider, like do the best that you can do, make sure the motives are clear, make sure the character feels like a real person. Like they go through an arc where at the beginning of the story, they are different than who they are by the end. And yeah, just trust your gut that kind of came through first you plotted out the story and where you kind of wanted it to go and then you came in and looked at like those scenes and like plotted out okay I want her to have more motive here and then you were able to compare the arcs and see where they are little by little but editing is basically where yeah we're here on our first draft being like how do I plot five different people's character arcs right now how do I make them all likable by the end like what do we do so this is helpful to know that like we don't have to have that Mm-hmm. no not at all and it's so hard because even right now I'm writing the sequel to uh, my next book coming out which is Belladonna the one I'm writing is called Foxglove mm-hmm. and as I'm drafting Foxglove I'm like what am I doing I suck as a writer like how am I ever oh. supposed to do this and I forget you know like I'm over here telling you like oh you know when it comes time to edit like you fix everything yeah. and then as you're writing it you still forget and you're in this like trap where it's just like, oh, I don't know how I'm ever going to finish this. I don't know how I'm ever going to make this character feel real. I don't know how I'm ever going to make this world feel real. And -hmm. it's like, you get there, you get there with edits. And I could say this to you guys and internalizing it is a whole (laughs) different thing, but like, I know it to be true. I know it to be true. Yeah. 
That is good um, motivation. <laughs> yeah. Um, here, I'll listen to the next one. Because something, I think we're both in a place of insecurity in our drafts. Like if you're playing a character, be jaded, show their pain and flaws, or even when world building, wondering if something is too fantastical or realistic. When you're writing the first book, what were some times when you had to overcome those doubts um, and what got you through it? Um, fear cockiness got me through mm. it. Okay. <laughs> okay. So we just have to like put on the crown of Alan. Yeah, I think that, you know, this industry is so hard and it's really difficult to read a book in its final form and then compare it to something that you are working on. Mm-hmm. And you're like, why am I not this person? Why am I not this mythical God? Why are they so much better than me? And it's like, that's because it's a fully done book that's gone through multiple rounds of you editing it, an editor editing it, a copy editor editing it, like so, so many people. Um, And and it's really hard to remember that. So I think you kind of have to like boost yourself up sometimes and just be like, no, I got this. Like, I'm, I'm amazing. I am fabulous. My story is awesome. And it's, you know, it's a lot harder than I'm making it sound. Um, but I think it's really important because everything in this industry is like, honestly, it's built more to knock you down than like boost you up. Yeah. So I think that when you can become your own biggest advocate, it's, it's going to make things a lot easier and it's really difficult. It's really hard and it's a constant battle, but I think you just kind of have to have, you kind of have to like have that. You have to, you know, try to get your skin nice and thick. You have to find the confidence somewhere. You have to find that piece of your writing that you love and that makes you enjoy writing and that makes you happy and like hang on to it for dear life the entire time because it is it is a long roller coaster. (laughs) Thank you. Yeah. Laura's confidence is just like green. I know where she got it from, girl. I know where she got it from. (laughs) Holy crap. (laughs) Okay. So uh, I think like when right now, like we're both world building. So right now, Anna mm. is, I guess I'll, I won't share what Anna's doing, but I guess I'll share about mine. Um, for <laughs> me right now, I'm building out the secret society and what everyone is trying to cover up and like the backstory for lots of people. And they're also going to parties and lavish balls and they're going to um, this giant, like built more estate type mansion kind of things. And, and for me, I think um, I personally like, I'm like, oh, is this too fantastic? Is that too many rooms? Is this too whatever? And I think sometimes I get, um, I always worry. I'm like, am I giving too much description to the side characters? Am I giving too much description to those things? And so the question that I have is you personally in your book, you fit this amazing world and magic into like two books. It doesn't feel cramped. So can you tell us about just how you kind of came up with that magic system and world? And how do you kind of know what information to give so you don't overwhelm the reader? Yeah. So I came up with it honestly, just by thinking what I like and what kind of magic do I like? And I knew I wanted a world with multiple magics. And I just wrote down an exhaustive list of all these different types of magics I thought were fun that I thought would be fun to write about. And that I also thought I can add something kind of new and unique to, and then I narrowed it down from there. I didn't narrow it down very much, obviously, because there's seven different magics and different islands, which yeah, is a lot, especially in a duology where I'm pretty sure every book is like at or under 400 pages or like right around there. Mm-hmm. So it's pretty condensed. And for me, it was just a matter of figuring out what information the reader needed. And, you know, 
this is also YA. This is an adult. And I feel like an adult, you get a lot more room to kind of be like, oh, this fantastical time magic over here. Let's spend a hundred pages just talking about the nuances yeah. of this. You don't get that in YA because everything is like, go, go, go. So it's like, what information does the reader need to have for this to make sense? How can I weave that information in earlier, hopefully by showing it. So it's not just randomly there, you know, when they need mm-hmm. it, it's not like, oh yeah, this magic that's being thrown at me that, you know, that comes <laughs> from these fireballs that <laughs> exist because of, you know, you want to make sure that that is already like built in and already kind of, sorry, if you hear my dog barking in the background, <laughs> no that's Meadow. She says, hi. <laughs> Um, but yeah, just making sure that that information kind of already exists. It feels plausible and it's the information that readers are going to need to understand the story and to continue it. And I think too, I wrote all the stars and teeth in first person and first person present. So as Amora, who has been kind of like locked away in her Island, as she is exploring these other places, we're also getting to explore it through her eyes. So the information that she's learning, we are learning it simultaneously. And I think that helped a lot with the, the fantastical world building and kind of making sure things were clear. And I'm not saying you have to do first person present at all. Obviously like Belladonna (laughs) is third person. Um, I think just whatever feels right to the story mm-hmm. and right to the character and how you can convey that information best to make sure it makes sense to the reader and that they're like kind of learning it organically would be the way to go. That's smart. I started my book as first person and I think I've switched it to third person because like I, I end up writing third person without realizing it. And I'm like, oh my gosh, is this meant to be in third person? So yeah, some are, they both have like, they have negatives, they have pros. Um, mm-hmm. I think it's just a matter of what feels best to you. Like I, I'm not married to one. Like I said, Belladonna yeah. is third person. All the stars and teeth is first. They're very, very different, but they each have kind of their own purpose. That's yeah, really cool. no, that's so true. Also, I've never had the impression in my life to ever write third person because I'm so <laughs> self-absorbed. I'm like, it is me. I am the character. So like if you girl, if if you suddenly find yourself accidentally writing third person, I think it's a sign. I think it's a sign because honey, honey, I am not there. You're probably right. <laughs> I'm like, I am the main character. I'm in a I'm in a ball dress, ball gown dress now. Ah ha ha, this is great. Like I promise you this book is well written. It's not just caveman talk, I promise. <laughs> oh my gosh. I'm okay, sorry. So this is um not really a spoiler question, but just like this, we're gonna have to dive into your books to answer this question. So the gift that was Farrick, <laughs> um, the idea of choosing someone who was already secured to her old world, who she could be mean to and show so much of her lack of growth. How and why did you choose to bring him into like you know, the new world, the story, obviously he's one of our favorites in the book because we keep bringing him up, but, um, how did you construct that character arc for him and how he helps kind of shape her? Because he is like a constant for her. Really talk about what really quick, Anna, your reaction when he jumped on the boat, what was your first reaction? It was so Oh, I was like, how are they going to get rid of him? Like he's, he's going to have to like, are they just going to jump in the water? And then he stayed. And then I was like, it just kind of chopped off. And I was like, okay, I love him. I love him. We love him. We love him. We would die for him. So, but yeah, we'd love to talk about and exploring that side character. That's just so full. 
Yeah, I feel like that's honestly like Anna, your reaction is how Farrick was kind of built. Like he's super annoying in the beginning. Yeah. And I mean, you kind of see that through Amora's perception of just like, oh my gosh, this guy is following me. I'm supposed to marry him. I don't like him. He's <laughs> super annoying. Look how awkward he is just getting like completely bested by a pirate in two seconds and getting his arm chopped off. Like he yep. is a very awkward <laughs> character, but he is very just he's very he's very centered um mm-hmm. he he thinks with his brain I think more than a lot of the other characters sometimes do and he's just very grounding and I feel like Amora especially in the beginning takes him like kind of just takes advantage of him and doesn't yeah. really view him as somebody kind of worth her time um but throughout the story he definitely you know, grows on the readers as much as he grows on her. Mm -hmm. And I think that he just, you know, she really needs that person to ground her. She really needs that sort of balance and that person who, you know, can see all sides of a situation and Mm -hmm. think about it not irrationally um, (laughs) like she sometimes does because she is very, like you said, very headstrong. Farrick is not that. Farrick is very like, okay, let's take a step back and think about what we're doing. Is everybody well fed? Like, is everybody good? Anybody have to use the bathroom before we get on this? (laughs) Like he's very much that. And I I wanted to bring him in. Yeah. Like you said, to also show her growth throughout the story, Mm -hmm. both emotionally, you know, her maturity, um, how she handles him, how she eventually like apologizes to him, which I think is a big thing that we don't really see enough in books like somebody actually yes. doing something wrong and apologizing mm-hmm. and having that okay be accepted seeing kind of that healthy relationship they have a very a very healthy relationship by the end <laughs> you know not in the <laughs> beginning but I think a good part of their relationship is pretty healthy especially when you know without getting into too many spoilers and goes through a lot of things in book one and I think in book two she's in a very very dark place. Oh, yeah. Um, she has PTSD. She's just depressed, very emotionally, like all over the place. And she doesn't have a chance to kind of step back or relax or, you know, do anything to help herself. And he is very much a, a grounding place for her. He's mm-hmm. very much a sense, like a sense of calm for her. And, you know, it's, him in the end who kind of helps her out of this out of this dark place Mm -hmm. and I wanted to sit in that for a long time too because oh my god I wanted to sit in her darkness for a while because I feel like especially in YA there's kind of this Mm -hmm. urgency to move forward at all times and you know characters die and it can be completely glossed over and you're just like okay we're not mourning here (laughs) no time to mourn And I don't think that that's true to life. Like if you lose people who are important to you and Amora, again, no spoilers, but loses a lot of people that are important to her Mm -hmm. in the first book, um, yeah, that sits with you and it's going to affect your behavior and, you know, it's going to maybe regress your behavior a little bit. And I want, I need a fair there to just be that sense of calm for her, be that person who, you know, she can rely on, um, especially because her and the, the love interest have, you know, sort of some chaos going. Yes. 
a little messy in book two. So just that, that best friend character, like Farragut, mm-hmm. who's very much her, he becomes her best friend. I know a lot of people that like submit questions and stuff for us. They're always trying to kind of know the challenges of like the publishing world and whether they should do self-publishing or whether it's best to do traditional and stuff like that. What made you, did you ever consider doing one or the other? What made you choose the traditional and what was that journey like for you? Like did, is this the first book you wrote or had you written before? We'd love to hear it. Yeah. Um, all the stars and teeth, I think it's the, I think the fourth, it's either the third or fourth book I wrote. Um, it's the second one I queried, uh, the first book I queried, I was in pitch wars with, I went through the whole process and, mm. you know, I got a mentor, I edited it, didn't go up anywhere, which was actually a good thing. It, it wasn't, <laughs> I don't think it was really deserving of shelf space. And I think that debuting with all the stars and teeth was better for me anyway, because once you kind of debut, you know, readers have expectations for the stories that you are going to continue with. And the initial book I queried was a sci-fi. It was very different and I don't have any other sci-fi ideas. So I don't know why I wrote a sci-fi, but I did. I love sci-fi. No one ever lets me talk about it. I love (laughs) sci-fi. I tried to do one episode of of like sci-fi books I recommend because I I dig it, man. I dig sci-fi. So uh. (laughs) there are so many sci-fi readers, but YA is is not a good place for sci-fi right now. And I don't understand it. Nobody understands it. It's so frustrating. I think it's, I don't know if it's because they've, we're trying to like move on from like the 2000s with like all the dystopian sci-fi type. Dystopian is not sci-fi. I know it's not sci-fi, I'll fight you. I know it's not sci-fi, but I think Ted, no. I think that might be, that might be the reason though, because even like, so we had that big vampire book boom and then Mm -hmm. all paranormal books got taken off. Like, it's like, we're so tired of paranormal and only now are they starting to, you know, resurface so hopefully hopefully sci-fi will have its own wave soon but I'm glad I didn't debut with it because it wasn't right and it's you know as much as I enjoy reading it I'm not a sci-fi writer (laughs) just my (laughs) my brain is not I guess quite as technologically smart as I think is required for sci-fi um at least a lot of the sci-fi I've read or watched Um, but I, I always knew that I wanted to go into traditional publishing. I knew that I wanted to be able to walk into a Barnes Noble or a Target and see my book on the shelf. I think it's a very personal decision of whether Mm -hmm. or not you want to go traditional or self-publishing route. I don't know, honestly, much about the self-publishing route. I know a reason for me to get into traditional publishing was that you have the backing of a publisher uh, to help you distribute. You don't have that initial cost up front. You don't have any cost. Like the money is flowing to you rather than like you are having to pay mm-hmm. to get your book, you know, into people's hands or like printing and your cover and everything. I wanted the help of a publisher. Yeah. Um, a reason for me too, was always, it's really hard to market your own book. But it's interesting because traditional publishing is now very much that as well. Like if you are an author, especially in YA, you are constantly promoting yourself, marketing yourself, admin. Um, There's actually very little time to write. It's like constantly trying to fight for time to write. But I think that in self-publishing, I would imagine, I don't have any experience with it, but I would imagine it's still so much more and much more difficult Mm -hmm. to kind of get off the ground because you don't have a lot of the 
you don't have access to a lot of the platforms that traditional publishing has and publishers have in promoting the book. It's much harder to get into those spaces because there's people who very unjustly so have stigmatized self-publishing and have a lot of like kind of weird views about it, of it being like lesser, um, which I don't agree with. I think it's super, super wrong, especially like there are so many amazing self-published books. And I think especially with the wave of book talk right now, we are seeing that we're seeing. Oh my gosh. Yeah. That have otherwise gotten no support, no hype absolutely blow up. And now all of a sudden, you know, traditional publishers are paying attention to Ice Planet yeah. Barbarian. And Literally, giving. I was in Target yesterday mm-hmm. and saw Ice Planet Barbarians in Target. I was like, yeah. wow. Yeah, go, Berkeley, go off. Really? It up. It 30 of those books. Did you know that? There's like 30 books. Yeah, it's wild, but it's like readers like to read variety and mm-hmm. tra- publishing, traditional publishing is like, you know, they pinpoint laser focus on one thing and it's like, okay, cool. Twilight is hot. Let's have some vampires. Now we're done. We're tired of of vampires. And it's not considering that readers are not tired of paranormal. It's like readers might be tired of sparkly vampires at the moment, but that doesn't mean that werewolves and bloodthirsty vampires and all these other stories, especially, you know, by like marginalized creators who never had a chance to write them. It doesn't mean that they are dead and they shouldn't be. So I think that there's a lot more room for creativity and kind of doing what you want in self-publishing. You don't have all those pressures from your publisher of, you know, this is what's cool for the market right now. It's like, there's, there's none of that. You are kind of making, you're doing whatever you want in self-publishing. Like you are responsible for your own editor, for your own cover, for distribution, for figuring out how you're going to print these books. Uh, you know, traditional publishing is a lot, there's a lot more possibilities to get your book in the hands of readers in foreign countries and places all around the world. Mm -hmm. There's just, there's pros and cons of both of them. And it's a really personal decision. And I think with traditional publishing, a lot of it too is dependent on your editor, you know, somebody who's not trying to change your story to be what they want. Somebody who actually sees your Mm -hmm. story and enjoys it for what it is and lets you have the room to create what you want to create. That said, traditional publishing is a business. There is a market. They have their own beliefs, their own systems. And there is always, even if it's not in your story, even if you don't have to conform your story at all, there's still always a sense of like, you have to conform to the fact that this is a business and deadlines and certain standards that they have and answering your emails on time, just all these different things. So it's a very personal decision. Um, I don't think either is right. I don't think either is wrong. I think it's just Mm -hmm. a matter of what you think is best for you. How do you um, see the future of publishing kind of, do you see it changing (laughs) at all? Or like, I'm so sorry if that's a loaded question. The laugh (laughs) that you just gave me, I was like, oh no, I'm scared. Because like, um, what was the, when you, when you finally got, you know, you queried and you got your agents like that, if you could give me a quick, like years or months or whatever, until it got, you know, from there to there, how long was that? And then where do you think the future kind of is going? Yeah, it, <laughs> I'll start with I'm so sorry. question. I'm so sorry. <laughs> it's a good question. It's a good question. Um, in terms of when I queried, I actually, you know, 
my previous book, I queried for over a year to so many agents, uh, more than I should have by far. And it didn't go anywhere. I queried all the stars and teeth and I actually got two offers of representation within 24 hours. Wow. And then more after that, it was very, very fast and very Your different. Your letter must have been amazing, girl. Holy it, crap. Something was in the air. It, <laughs> yeah, it, it was way better than it had ever previously been for me. Um, but, you know, that said, then I edited it with my previous agent um, and we sent it out on sub a couple months later, which is when your agent takes your book to editors and it's like, Hey, do you want to buy this? Do you like this? And then can you convince the rest of your team to also like it and want to buy it? Um, and we got so close so many times on submission to so many different editors, but it took, I want to say at least six months. I want to say like six to eight months for the book to sell and it's really interesting because when you're on sub, there's always this emphasis on the the flashy, like, oh, this sold overnight. And look at this magical book over here that <laughs> sold within a week. And when you go over a month, you're just like, my book is dead. I'm dead. I'm, I'm, I'm worthless. Everything's yeah. worthless and sucky. It's like the biggest sub is so difficult. Like I querying is very, very hard. And when you have your agent, you are one step closer to realizing your dream. You go on sub, that is your dream. They are holding your dream in the fate <sighs> of their hands. Yeah. And then just watching it get like crushed over and over again can be really, really hard. Um, which is why you should always be writing the next thing. It's just That's FYI. Smart. I wrote, I first drafted Belladonna when All the Stars and Teeth was on sub. And it was very different back then. But, yeah. you know, I had the seeds of the story. Uh, by the time we sold all the stars and teeth to the time it came out, I want to say it was a year and a half, two years. Mm -hmm. Like there's, there's usually quite a lead up. Belladonna is going to be a two year gap from when I sold it to when it comes out. Um, and it's, you know, it's dependent on if you are a debut, you've probably submitted the full of your book, a full edited draft. If you are, you know, if you've been working in publishing for a while, you might sell a book on proposal like I did with Belladonna, which means once I sell it, I have to then write the rest of it. Mm -hmm. uh, so it might need a little bit more time, but it's kind of all over the place. I've seen books that were done very, very fast, like eight months. Um, even a year is fast because there's a lot of different stages, you know, of editing the cover, copy editing, promotion, everything like that. So you kind of want a somewhat longer lead up time. But it, it really is all over the place. It varies from book to book. In terms of where I see publishing, <laughs> it's really hard to say. And I don't even think publishing knows. I think that, you know, with the rise, honestly, of book talk, it yeah. has changed a lot. It has shown publishing that, you know, their belief systems and what they think readers want is probably not right. Uh, that there's a lot more room there for a lot of different books. And I'm hopeful that we will get that. I think too, Upper YA and NA has been a big thing Oh yeah, on TikTok, having a category for, you know, 20 year old books and books with like romance, but that doesn't mean that they just have to have a bunch of sex in them, which I think is what NA became. 
Oh, yeah, we yeah, need that. Yeah, we need that between category. We need that between category because right. I'm like, I don't want to read if a girl wants to know if he if she's gonna get asked to prom, but also like I don't want to know if someone's. I don't want to clinically go through their night together. Yeah. yeah. Right. <laughs> Right. And I think that, you know, we're definitely getting a lot more books in that middle ground, but they're being categorized as upper YA or, you know, sometimes Mm -hmm. adult. And I think in either case, you know, it might be, it might be right. Just dependent on the book and, you know, other themes coming of age stories, you know, whatnot, how it reads. But I think that it can find its audience better if there was another category. I know that is a more broad issue than just with publishing. It's also bookstores and getting that shelf space and getting that, you know, specific section just for them. Um, I'm hopeful that different stories will start coming out, that it won't be so vampires are hot. Let's have vampires. Vampires aren't hot. No more vampires for the next 10 years. Yes. Uh, That there's going to be a lot more wiggle room. I'm hoping that publishing kind of like steps up their game a little bit in terms of getting getting readers access to different types of books, but who knows what it's going to look like, especially paired with this pandemic, I think is very, Mm -hmm. very interesting. I don't know. I would hope, I really, really hope that now that everything is, has been work from home for so long that we can get more talent and different sort of like different editors, marginalized yeah. editors, people who don't live in New York because New York is very expensive and it's hard yes. for a lot of people to live there. And I don't think they need to, you know, I think publishing in particular works very well, especially editors. Yeah. There's been if a lot of gatekeeping yeah. because like there isn't yes. a lot of amount of books that can get published because there's such a few amount of agents and editors and right. Is that true? Am I wrong? Yeah, uh, I don't know that adding more, I think adding more, especially in publishing for editors would definitely help Mm -hmm. um, because they are so oversaturated, but I don't necessarily think it means more books will be picked up because of shelf space, because there's already, especially in YA right now, there's a big saturation of books and Mm -hmm. it's very difficult um, to kind of compete with each other and you know, they pick certain dates for books to release and you're always up against like New York Times bestseller over here, USA bestseller over here. Mm -hmm. There's just a lot of books coming out right now because YA has been so, so popular for such a long time. Um, And I think adding editors will help. I think it will make the quality of books better. I think it'll, I think it would save authors a lot of frustration as well, because there's just a lot of stress in publishing, like questions that you have questions that your editors have to ask other people and don't always get answers to things that you're wondering. And they're just always overworked. They are overworked and underpaid. And I definitely think adding more editors and paying them better would be Mm -hmm. helpful in terms of agents. I don't know. I don't, I don't know that adding more agents, I think there are a lot of agents actually. And Mm -hmm. I think that there are few that are actually worth their salt. And I've talked Good about that a lot before. Um, okay. I, when I first queried, I think I made the mistake of querying too widely. Everybody, mm. I would query anybody who like called themselves an agent, whether it was like a state farm agent or whatever. <laughs> I'd be like, here you go. Do you like my book? Yeah. And that's, I would not recommend that. I think that it's very important to look 
very deeply into the sales of agents. Um, not only that, but like, who are they selling to? Are they selling to the same house, same editor all the time? Did Mm. they only have a relationship with that house and that editor? Are they selling digital only deals? Are they selling only to small press? Are they selling like, where are they selling? How much are they selling for? Uh, Who are their clients? And then I would also look at their acknowledgements of authors that you feel like you're similar to, and then check their website and see who they have listed as their agent. And is it the same as their acknowledgements or have they changed agencies or agents? And then maybe you can look into that agent who was left and kind of do some investigating how many other clients have left them. That's really smart. Um, There's, there's a lot of research to be done. And I think that getting a bad agent is significantly worse for you than having no agent. I do not think that you should just, you know, keep throwing your query out there to whoever and hope that somebody will say yes. I think that it's best to curate a list of people you want to work with remember that this is a business relationship and that they are your business partner. And if none of them want your book, it's probably time to write a new book. Do not settle because you are going to get yourself into a very bad business situation. That'd be my advice. I know other people feel differently. No, that's good advice. And I love like the, the confidence too, that Mm -hmm. I think is there. It's like, so what if that book or whatever, doesn't keep writing, keep going, keep doing things Mm -hmm. like it was really cool. Last week we talked with Jordan, but I bet you like all of those books are incredible. Like her insight, her understanding of things. And for her, like, I'm glad, like, I cannot wait to read the book that she, that she has, you know what I mean? Yeah. To be able to like take that story and stuff like that. I've read Jordan's or like some of them. I've read some of Jordan's books and they're wonderful. Mm-hmm. I think that, you know, she is absolutely a fabulous writer. And I'm also so very talented. excited for the day where it's like, okay, well, what do you publish first? Like what yeah. is going to be this magnificent story? Oh my gosh. We're all going to be there. Just like, add yeah. her, like a thing. Be <laughs> like, hey, hey, what's up? Hey, we love you. Hey, go. <laughs> mm-hmm. But that, um, that's one thing that like really caught my attention. So like a lot of our podcasts, like blew up and stuff like that. When we first started talking with, um, Adrian Young, like she, randomly heard one of our recaps of fable and like she was like oh my god and i was like can you come on a podcast you know? like we shot our shot we were like we, we shot our shot it was embarrassing <laughs> but we were there but when something that was really cool is when i was meeting up with her up in knoxville we were talking and stuff like that and i was like i think it's really sweet that you flew out you guys all flew out to like rachel's um like book release or whatever and um she's like well it's like when someone has a baby like you it's something that is just so we, you work so hard for, and mm-hmm. she's like, we all have to be there to celebrate. We all have to be there to like do that. And I think like, that's something that we, me and Anna have always just looked at y'all's community and been like, that is really cool. Like when Stephanie, like, you know, I, I just think I have so much respect for that because it's true when something like that you work so hard for gets out into the world, like it needs to be celebrated because it's, it was not accidentally done. One does not accidentally write a full book, edit it a million times, find yeah. an agent, query, you know, get it published. Yeah. One doesn't oh. accidentally do that. <laughs> And it's usually really rare too to like sell the first book you wrote or to get mm-hmm. an agent with the first book you wrote. Some people definitely do it. Like Shelby Mahurin, I know is one. She wrote mm-hmm. Serpent and Dove, um, got an agent with it. Has an incredible readership now, an incredible story. We're not surprised. She's a three. What do you expect? One. <laughs> yeah. No. But like, it is very rare. So I think those moments, like when it actually happens and when it comes out, 
you just, you, yeah, there's, there's nothing you can do, but celebrate and be excited for that person because there's been so much work and so many years and usually so many stories behind it. Is it hard letting those stories go? Sometimes. Um, I know when I let my pitch words book go, it actually, it was fine. I think that you sort of reach a point where, or at least I do, I, I guess I'm more business minded where it's like, I have exhausted the list of people I want to work with. I have mm-hmm. exhausted my, the, it's kind of difficult to put into words, but basically the book I wrote was no longer a reflection of my actual talent. Yeah. I learned a lot with it. I have been, you know, editing it for years and I have been having critique partners and beta readers and agents. You know, I was fortunate enough to get like some feedback from an agent or two Um, and you just kind of realize that you can do better. And Mm -hmm. I think once you kind of realize that and are able to move forward, it can do really good things for you because you're only going to create a better story. Now, you know, structure better, you know, character arcs better. You, you know, you know, agents that you want to work with more, or if you got feedback from one, um, you know, they are, they're looking out for your next story. So I think that you only can do better when you're able to walk away from a story that is no longer a reflection of your writing or your Mm -hmm. skill or the level that you are at. That's not to say, you know, throw your story away if one (laughs) agent rejected it. Yeah. Um, You will always get rejections. Mm -hmm. I, you know, even when you're published and you go on sub with like new stories, some editors will want it. Some won't. Everything is a matter of taste and preference. So while I think that you should curate a list of agents and be very selective, that is not to say only pick five and then give up. Yeah. No, that's smart. That's really good advice. Hmm. You're like, thank you. This is like our first real look into like realistically <laughs> what it yeah. takes and the process. And yeah, it's super cool. But yeah, we just, um, we want to be able to get so that everybody can pre-order your next book. Now that they know the entire laborious, beautiful process that you had to go through to create <laughs> I know. it. I grabbed a, um, so when exactly is Belladonna coming out? I want to say like May, is May August, coming out? August 23rd. August 23rd. Okay. Mm-hmm. And you can pre-order now. <laughs> can pre-order now. <laughs> I'll read the little, um, back page excerpt. So orphaned as a baby, 19-year-old Cigna has been raised by a string of guardians, each more interested in her wealth than her well-being, and each has met an untimely end. Her remaining relatives are the elusive Hawthorns, an eccentric family living at Thorn Grove, an estate both glittering and gloomy. Its patriarch mourns his late wife through wild parties, while his son grapples for control of the family's waning reputation and his daughter suffers from a mysterious illness. But when their mother's restless spirit appears, claiming she was poisoned, Cigna realizes that the family she depends on could be in grave danger. Cigna's best chance of uncovering the murder is an alliance with death himself, a fascinating, dangerous shadow who has never been far from her side. Though he's made her life a living hell, death shows Cigna that their glowing connection may be more powerful and more irresistible than she ever dared imagine. Oh my gosh. I, Belladonna brings to life a highly romantic, gothic-infused world of wealth, desire, and betrayal. Every time I read this, I like get the tingles. I literally cannot wait. <laughs> we talked about this for our... 2020 anticipated reads so oh, yeah. like so excited for it <laughs> <laughs> and I'm glad you're excited too it's so it's interesting it's so different than all the stars and teeth mm-hmm. I feel like all the stars and teeth was like my exploration 
into publishing and it's like going off on a, an adventure where now Belladonna is like, okay, I have been in this for a little bit. Mm-hmm. I've written a series. I kind of, I know where I am and what I want to do. And now let's just settle in. Let's like sit down yeah. on the couch with let's a cup comfy. of tea and mm-hmm. write this like dark Gothic story that just feels very at home for me, very comfortable. Mm-hmm. Um, I love the story so much. I pitch it as Bridgerton meets Crimson Peak, or I've heard people oh pitch it gosh. as Bridgerton meets Haunting at Hill House. <gasps> um, it is a relationship with death as a love interest, mm-hmm. wow. and it is a you know dark murder mystery, and I love it so much. It's very, you know, it's Victorian inspired. Um, yeah very fun it's kind of like imagine clue how you know there's this mystery that's kind of like centered around a house mm-hmm. you know there's like maybe one other location and alan Belladonna, give it but give it to us right now alan <laughs> alan like oh my no. gosh give it the to us right say. now stop <laughs> stop it's too I good too good it so much it is it's definitely my favorite book i've written um I love Good. all the stars and teeth. I love all the stars and teeth. Bella but you're just going to keep getting better the more yeah. you write. Yeah. I feel like every book, every new book you have should be your favorite book you've ever exactly, written. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. And it just feels like a nice comfy home for me. And I'm mm-hmm. very, very excited to share it with people. Um, I know people are very excited for death as a love interest. Yes. And I will say I had a lot of fun with that. <laughs> just really love our morally gray characters, huh? Yeah. Yeah, Signa is interesting. She's not quite as morally gray, I would say, as Amora, but mm-hmm. um, I won't spoil anything, but she definitely has some changes throughout the story mm-hmm. that I think are very interesting. Okay. We love it. We love to see it. <laughs> where can we stalk you? Like, where can everybody go and stalk you? Yeah, I would suggest stalking me uh, on Instagram. I think mm-hmm. that is the best way to stalk me as I post the most there. <laughs> I am author Adeline Grace, I believe on Instagram. I do have a Twitter. I don't recommend going there. I never post anything. Twitter is a dark place. I, we, don't, yeah, we don't talk about yeah. Twitter or Bruno. Exactly. No. We don't, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, I would recommend Instagram. I post a lot of updates there. I'm usually pretty good about, you know, any sales or any exciting news about the books, pre-order campaigns and stuff like that. I will definitely be posting on my Instagram. Sweet. Yay. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for coming on. This was amazing to talk to you and get all your insight. Yeah. Yeah. It was fun. Very excited. All right. Thank you so much. Thank you. We'll see you guys next week. Bye.